0: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 and 9 through 18. It is located in your bulletin and in our church Bibles on page 744. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Please be seated.
1: Let's take a moment to pray before we come to our study this morning in Daniel 7. Our Father, we take our cue from the Psalms, where the Psalm writer says, My soul faints with longing for your salvation, but I have put my hope in your word. Lord, it is true that these words in this book are life to us and food to us, that invested with your Spirit, they have become a living word to us, through which you guide us, through which you reassure us of the promises you have made to us in Jesus Christ, that we have a hope in you. And in this transitional week for our country, Father, for this new administration coming in, we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy on our country, and Lord, that you would lead us and that we who trust in your word would pray to you that you would return and turn our nation to you. In Christ's name, amen. The books of Daniel and Revelation, as you may know, have this in common. They contain this apocalyptic way of writing. These uh, rather strange visions from God of nightmarish and wonderful figures, and you can read them in chapter 7 onwards till the end of Daniel. It's a language of pictures and symbols and secrets of the future. Thomas Jefferson famously said that he found this kind of writing in the Bible to be, quote, merely the ravings of a maniac, no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherences of our own nightly dreams. And I suppose it does seem incoherent to read these things when you first see them, but it really shouldn't be that unusual to us. After all, what did we watch this week? Some of us at courtside, some on TV If not, the titanic struggle which ensued between two great rams upon a great field of wood, battling for a gloriously bouncing brown orish orb. The great ram from New York may have won this time, but rest assured, this ram of Richmond will rise again and crush its adversaries beneath its golden horns. Now... When we speak like that, people may be alarmed, but they're not confused. (laughs) They're not confused by incoherent animal imagery. We know what it stands for, and uh, it makes the contest all the more because of it. So I don't want you to be afraid of all the lions and tigers and bears that you're going to read here uh, about and in uh, Revelation. These are pictures, yes. But they are symbols nevertheless. They are a code language for what, not for what is mythical or fantastic, but a code language for what is real and for what has happened and for what will happen. So I want to offer to you three guides from Daniel chapter 7 this morning. A, a way to read these pictures. B, a way to read these symbols of history. And C, a way to read your own history in the light of it. So if you would uh, turn again to these words in the bulletin or in the church Bible, uh, the first three verses, a way to read these pictures. Do you remember the last time you had a really clear dream? Perhaps after an evening meal with a particularly potent cheese. The striking thing, of course, about these visions is that Daniel is quite clear with us. He's seen these things because God has shown them him these things in a dream. And so the experience, you notice, as he writes it down, has dreamlike qualities. So how he focuses on this experience is like you would in a dream. He focuses on one thing at a time. He watches like you do in a dream as these uh, images appear, these striking images, which look, he says, and that's important, they look like a lion or they look like a bear. That is, that a lion or a bear is the closest thing he can compare them to. But they're not recognizable animals, they are beasts. In fact, the way he describes them emphasizes their beastliness. Whatever they are, they're alive, but they aren't human. The sense here is of deformity and unnaturalness and grotesquerie, which is my word of the morning. Notice here is a fourth beast with great iron teeth, devouring and breaking and stomping. And Daniel cannot even find a comparison to make to it. It's unlike anything he's seen before. It doesn't look like a beast so much as some foul machine. And again, as in a dream, things happen in the dream that in the waking world wouldn't make that much sense. So here are strange beasts arising inexplicably out of the ocean what were they doing there? Why were they there? Won't the water mess with their feathers? You see, in a dream, you don't ask those questions, do you? It doesn't matter. But this isn't just any old dream notice. This is a vision given in a dream state. It's a revelation of secret things revealed by an angelic guide to a beloved servant. This is a gift to Daniel, and it's significant, I think, that it comes towards the very end of his life, that God brings him into his confidence. But you'll notice when Daniel wakes up from it, alarmed, he says, so much so that the color has drained from his face at what he's been shown and the message he's been given, he can only describe, he says, a sum of the dream. So complex and so vivid is what he's been shown. Now, all of that is apocalyptic literature, and you will find it at significant moments in the Bible when God has something prophetic to share, which is of value particularly for the saints, for the church, that they might be encouraged. And that's what we'll find in the book of Revelation as we look at Revelation next month. But this, I think, is the sum of this for us, for what these pictures of beasts might mean. You know, all the way through Daniel, there have been references to the creation story in Genesis. We haven't highlighted them, but they are there. And the theme of creation in Genesis is, as you may know, of God's order. Humans under God caring for the creatures, for creation, for the beasts. And here is the contrast, the very basic contrast, this roiling sea of strife pictured here in Daniel 7. is a picture of political chaos and of human rebellion against God, which is the world order, the world system. And it produces, you notice, not civilization and progress that the world would say it does, but instead it produces this misshapen, unreasoning, violent beast's In other words, turning against God, that's what human society becomes. Without God, we become not men, but beasts. Eric Larson wrote an account of the days before the war in Berlin, when the American ambassador, a man called William Todd, was dealing with the central characters of the Nazi party who were rising to power. And with deliberate irony, Larson entitles the book after the Berlin Zoo, the Tiergarten, and he calls it, in dealing with the Nazis, in the Garden of the Beasts, he called it. Well, this is Daniel's version of the same. A world at war with God in an ocean of beasts. It's the way, perhaps, to read these pictures. Second, I want to offer to you a way to read these symbols of History. Thomas uh, Jefferson's complaint, if you were to read more of it about apocalyptic literature in a letter to his friend, was that there was, quote, not coherence enough in these paralogisms, he called it, which is a word that Jefferson apparently used and means uh, an argument against reason. To countenance, he said, any suite of rational ideas. What has no meaning, he said, admits no explanation. So he refused to pick up apocalyptic literature in the Bible. And he was, I think it's true, a fairly bright man who would have been right about this except for one thing. And I want to explain that by giving you another analogy from the war. One of the uh, great stories of World War II was how the imperial Japanese code was broken by U.S. intelligence uh, fairly on in the war in the Pacific. The Japanese had many code books, but uh, uncharacteristically, they were lazy about changing them so that they became vulnerable to being broken. The codes did. And the breakthrough came when US intelligence got wind of an impending attack on a place designated in the imperial code by the letters AF. So the code breakers, who had some suspicion about where this was, set an experiment up to persuade the Japanese to tell them what AF meant... By faking a breakdown in the desalinization plant at the island of Midway and then broadcasting that message. And then, sure enough, the Japanese sent out an alert that AF's desalinization plant was disabled. The code had been revealed AF was Midway Island. Symbols are meaningless if you don't know what they mean. But Daniel here is told what this code means. It's referring to real places and real people, historic kings and historic kingdoms in a followable timeline. Now, I know some of you won't take my word for it, probably understandably. The consensus of liberal commentators, though, has been this. And this is telling. It's been that these prophetic dreams in Daniel 7 to 12 Must have been written in the first century BC rather than in the time of Daniel several centuries before. Why? Because they say they are far too accurate to have been written before that. The code you see is clear and it has been decoded for Daniel. Well, how are we to read these symbols of history? Who is the first beast? Well, as Alan showed us uh, a few weeks ago in uh, our study in Daniel 4, this is not a mystery. The starting point is a man who became a beast before he became a man again, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who grew eagle feathers and bird's claws, but a humbled Nebuchadnezzar who received from God perhaps what he'd never had, received back true humanity. And so we read In chapter 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now, that much is quite clear. What follows next is almost as clear, but perhaps a little less so. I want to give you what I think is the uh, better reasoned of the two options for interpretation. So, these beasts... The first here of the remainder is this lumbering, lolloping bear, and he is likely, most commentators I think have said, the empire of the Persians. It's depicted here as a brutal but lazy scavenger finishing off the ribs of some weakened victim, and that was characteristic of the Persians and the Medes, that they would find these weakened victim kingdoms and then gobble them up. The third beast, the leopard with four wings and four heads, is marked by its speed and its ferocity, hence its characterization as a leopard. But why does it have four heads? Well, the armies of of, uh, Alexander the Great of Greece had four generals. In fact, the four generals to whom his kingdom was ceded after his untimely death, after overcoming Persia and the East. It's fact, it's history. But Daniel's interest, you notice, is in this fourth beast. What is the fourth beast? Well, if you follow the timeline, it is likely the Romans. And I grant you the symbolism is a little weird, an animated piece of ivory horn shouting at people. But A, this horn, this picture of horns, are pictures of power growing out of some kingdom, out of something else. And, well, it's a dream, And dreams can be weird. What does it mean? Well, Daniel is told the ten horns are ten kings. Likely, the first ten emperors of Rome. And the last of them, Vespasian, had a son, this eleventh horn, Titus. And it fits. Titus was the general who in AD 70 sacked the city of Jerusalem. And from the time of his arrival in Israel... So the time of the destruction of Jerusalem was the time that's described here, some three and a half years, desecrating, destroying the temple, sending the Jews to an exile that they would not return from until 1945. You can see more of the story in chapter 9. We'll see this next week where this figure, this figure of this little horn in verse 25 sets up what's called the abomination that causes desolation. In Hebrew, it's a a complicated way of putting it, but literally it describes a desecration of what is most holy, which is the temple. And this figure will do so in a way that lays waste to everything. For the Jews, it was an unspeakable evil and an atrocity that was in view. There is, as you might expect, uh, debate about whom this refers to, Might it be an earlier Greek general? Uh, Many people have suggested it is. But if it matters to you, I think the strongest case can be made that this is a Roman event. And what persuades me are the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 as he referred people to this prophecy in Daniel 7. Because the Bible, of course, has 66 books and 40 writers and one author, and it is him. And Jesus refers to this prophecy, and he tells people it's coming. It's not that it has happened, but it is coming. It will happen, in fact, within the lifetimes of some who were hearing him. But before I sink into the weeds of prophetic detail, let me return to my main point. These are not vague, unanchored, metaphoric dream experiences. They are the descriptions of history of the rise and fall of historic kingdoms, even, you see, down to the complexity of the numbers of their generals and their kings and their kingdoms and the precise time that they would be permitted to wage war against the saints. Now, Daniel, as I mentioned, is most interested in this fourth beast that will wage war against the saints. But here is what we hadn't expected. Here, I think, is a radically different view of history than we have been accustomed to. Look at this. Verse 9. Daniel's, you'll see, has shown that quite suddenly this beast is brought to heel when the ancient of days God himself takes his seat. And whenever in the Bible a judge sits down, it is for judgment. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, killed suddenly. Do you see that? In the middle of all of its boasting, in the middle of when it appeared to have victory and power, God's judgment falls suddenly. That's the way that we are told that history will end, not with a bang but with a whimper, suddenly and with God's intervention and with judgment. No wonder Daniel wakes up in a cold sweat the beast, this horn, whether it's a general, a king, a kingdom, it's destroyed. Its power is taken away from it. Three others are allowed to remain, but their power too is broken. Now, what makes this compelling? Well, this, given the timeline, if this is an actual description of history, if this is a, an, a, a revealing of these four types of kingdoms that were to follow, as we know did follow the kingdom of the Babylonians, after the four beasts, you'll notice, comes their removal. And then we read verse 7, 13. One like a son of man came to the ancient of days and presented was presented before him. Now, what makes this so compelling, and this often happens when you're reading the Bible, is God will show you something for the first time you haven't seen before. And it may be, as you read through Acts 7, you'll be struck with the surprise of this as I was, as it was explained to me that Stephen, Stephen as he was being stoned, or just before so, looked to heaven and he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he was quoting Daniel. He was saying, this has been fulfilled. Jesus is the Son of Man who now has defeated the beasts and stands at the right hand of God. So I'm not sure about this. I think whenever you're dealing with these things, you need to deal them with a fair amount of humility, perhaps more than I've shown this morning. But I think you need to come here, Dr. Lamerson, to get the full and the right picture. But I want to say to you, maybe this isn't about the future. Maybe this is about what has already happened, and we are living in this little part of it at the end of verse 12, waiting for Christ to bring in everyone who must come, to destroy the remnants of these beasts' kingdoms and to give the saints his kingdom. It's wild, isn't it? It's a way to read these symbols of history. And finally, we see a way to read your history. Two images uh, come to my mind as I'm reading this. The first, strangely, is of Coach Mike Ditka. Remember uh, Mike Ditka, who was a first sports commentator for many years. Before that, he was coach of the Saints, and before that, he was coach of the Chicago Bears. I remember the day we were living in Chicago. He came out in 1992. Nobody had thought this day would come. Ditka was dismissed by the Bears organization. And the old bear-like philosopher of football, and a bit of a beast himself, told the assembled press, this too shall Pass. And reading this passage, in this world, if you are loyal to Jesus and stuck with Jesus' words and you persevere in living in Jesus' ways, you will suffer loss. There is no doubt. The Bible is plain about this. The world system we live in is violently opposed, bestially opposed to the kingdom of Jesus and to the saints of the Most High. So the world may look like a cuddly animal, but it will bite you if you stand for Christ. And some days we see it, don't we? You know, I heard at the beginning of the week a reporter, it happened to be on NPR, brightly telling us that the rate of abortions in the United States has fallen to its lowest level since the introduction of uh, abortion under Roe versus Wade. Now, she said, it's under a million a year. What's happened to us as a society that anyone would applaud that statistic? And the church is not guiltless in the matter. Aside from ministries like the PRC, we have largely neglected the poor. Abortion is a very great evil, but it's not the only one. Greed, indifference, rebellion, the profane boasting of the age we live in against God, the insipid, self-satisfied consumerism of our own culture... Romans says that Christians living under that will groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. That groaning of the homesick child is the mark of the Christian, and it's what you should be experiencing. You should not feel at home here. You should feel dislocated. You should feel, to a degree, oppressed, whether you're being openly oppressed or not. But Daniel's encouragement is this, this too, he says, this time shall pass. The second image I was drawn to is from The Fellowship of the Ring, a book by Tolkien. As the wizard Gandalf tells Frodo, when Frodo complains about his lot in life in receiving the ring, he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, says Frodo. So do I, says Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. So you have been given your time too. Not perhaps to make Titanic struggle against beasts, but simply to decide day by day how to use the time that God in his sovereign kindness has given you. You see, the secret of the Christian life is not to seek to be faithful for a lifetime or to seek to be changing the whole world or even a whole city, but rather to be faithful today in the places and the opportunities God is giving you today and for today. Not to lose hope in Jesus, your Redeemer, but to keep your eyes on the prize to read Daniel 7, and to know that it's true. Let's pray for that as we close. Father, we live in a world that we don't understand. It seems, looking at the newspapers, we increasingly don't understand it. We are told that the wheat and the tares are growing up together, and it's true. We see good things happening alongside quite horrible things. And as your church and as your people, Lord, we long to be faithful to you. Lord, we long to be loyal to you. We long to pass on your words of salvation and your words that call the world to turn back to you. Lord, in our places and in our spheres and in our little ways and in the encouragements we can give to each other as we persevere, We pray, Lord, that we would not forget these words of Daniel, and we would look forward to that day when the Son of Man will be the one who greets us with the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. In your grace, Lord, that is our hope. Amen.